Well, thanks for tuning in. I'm Deb Ruggiero, host of Rhode Island's Amazing Women. It's a radio show on this station and also a podcast available on all your favorite streaming devices and at AmazingWomenRI.com. Today, we're going to talk about mental health. It is as important as physical health, one in the same. The mental health of young adults has reached a crisis point. There's research from the Rhode Island Department of Behavioral Health Care that shows that more than half of Rhode Island's young adults suffered from depression last year. Over one-third suffered from anxiety and 15% contemplated suicide. What is going on? Let's find out. My guest is Dr. Daisy Basson, the medical director at Thrive Behavioral Health. She's a child psychiatrist who's also vice president of the Rhode Island Council of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Basson graduated from Princeton University's creative writing program, but then completed medical training at the University of Rochester and Brown University. She was born and raised in New York, now lives in East Greenwich with her husband and three children. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Basson. Well, thank you for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. It's so important. I referenced the research by uh, the Rhode Island Behavioral Healthcare Survey, a majority of teens suffering from poor mental health, and 15% of Rhode Island high school students reported attempting suicide one or more times. Certainly, I mean, the pandemic was a stressor, but as a child psychiatrist, you know, what do you think are some of the causes and what are you seeing? I think that for a lot of folks, the pandemic revealed what people in child psychiatry have known has been going on for years, which is sort of a chronic underinvestment in services for children and youth, um, not just in our state, but certainly here as well. Um, we have to start at the beginning. We have to start with families. We have to start with schools. And we have to start when problems are small. And unfortunately, usually across medicine and may probably in the world, we usually pay attention to emergencies and crises. And that's what gets the most attention. And people are great about doing fundraisers um, and shipping in. But this sort of day in, day out, uh, sort of smaller tasks, which are really critical for, for healthy development of children, don't always get the same attention and unfortunately not the same funding. Um, at, at every level. Um, so I think that if you talk to any child psychiatrist, you know, they would say what I would say, which is that we were not shocked um, when things went off the rails with the pandemic, because for us, it was just sort of the last straw. Um, and it revealed, I think, to a lot of people, the sort of deficit um, we have across the board in terms of being able to give our, our children and, and teens what they need. And I want to say that despite the fact that Rhode Island is actually a state with an unusual concentration of psychiatrists, we are basically one of the only states that has a freestanding child psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. um, we have an excellent child fellowship program. A number of our trainees stay in the state. Um, I trained at, at Bradley and I stayed here afterwards. I've worked in a number of different uh, practice locations throughout my throughout my uh, career, um, consulting to schools, working at Butler Hospital inpatient. I had a private practice. Um, most child psychiatrists don't do one job. Most child psychiatrists do two or three jobs. Um, I think I sort of mostly do one job right now, but even my one job as the medical mm. director of Thrive includes work um, at, a, at a therapeutic school, as well as treating kids with medication um, and working with treatment teams. So there's a lot of work to be done across the board um, and a lot of different places where treatment can be offered. And it's a matter of us investing in our workforce and also decreasing stigma and barriers so that people can get the care that they need when they need it. Right. That's a lot to unpack. You said yeah. a lot of things. Um, certainly, we are fortunate to have Bradley 
in Rhode Island, uh, you made a good point about the mental health of so many young children and young teenagers hanging on by a gossamer wing. And certainly the pandemic sort of exacerbated it and really shed a light on it, there's no doubt. Um, what struck me was by 2018, and this was before the pandemic and COVID-19, suicide was the second leading cause of death for people 10 to 24, 10 year olds. You know, what what is going on? I mean, is it the ubiquitous of uh, the ubiquitousness of social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, stressing young people out in, in, in your clinical opinion? I think that social media can be a stressor. I don't I wouldn't pin all the problems to it. I think that, you know, it's just it's it's part of it. It's only one. And we'll get into some others. I think I think the bigger piece is that families don't get the support they need. And so if there are issues that come up on social media, families are already at their breaking point and they don't know what to do to help their children. Their children don't know how to ask for help. So social media can sort of tip somebody over. But in most cases, that's probably not the, the main issue. The main issue is that a child who's in distress doesn't know how to ask for help. Parents don't know how to respond. And if they do, they don't know where to get the help. So there's multiple places along the way where there's a problem. But I think it's really children are always treated within family systems. And so the, the, it's not the stimulus, it's the response. And what you're saying, the parents don't necessarily know, okay, where do I go? What do I do? And it gets back to your original point that we really need to fund mental health, period. It's yeah. as simple as that, right? It is. And also looking at different levels of mental health funding. So people might think about emergency rooms, which are really, really important. And then I think about inpatient services, which are also really, really important. But there's actually lots of other levels of mental health care that are available in our state to kids, which can be super helpful. So for example, kids can see a therapist in the office once a week for an hour, or they might go to a group therapy session. Groups can be focused specifically on a disorder, or they can be focused on an activity. So like a therapeutic creative writing group or a therapeutic art group. Kids can get home-based therapy through multiple agencies in the state. And that's not necessarily only taking place in someone's home, but it just means it's not based in the office. So it could be taking place in the home. So you get to see kids in their sort of natural habitat, right. but also outside in the community. We also so have- how, how does a parent access that? Well, I think when in doubt in Rhode Island, we now have a hotline. <laughs> so that's actually really helpful. Um, so in Rhode Island, you can call KidsLink when you're not sure what to do and someone will talk to you and tell you based on what's going on with your child, what might be helpful services. So you don't have to figure it out. You're saying kids link link kids link. And what is that number? Do you know? At the top of my head, I don't know if because I'm okay. already, or you can just Google kids link. Yeah. Yes. And that's okay. a number that's um, basically sort of hosted by Bradley staff. Okay. So that, uh, usually it's a, a social worker, clinical social mm -hmm. worker who's gonna be talking to you and giving you advice after they hear what's going on about what might be helpful treatment. And also we have 211. Yes, we also have that. And now, now we also have 988. Yep, so boy, lots of numbers, 988, 211. Um, and these resources are available. Uh, do people have to have health insurance? I mean, how do they access the system? How does that work, uh, Dr. Bass? Call a number, you call a number. And it's the people's job to give you some advice about where to go. Um, some practices and some, some places only take certain insurance, but community mental health centers basically take all insurances. And if mm -hmm. people don't have insurance, which the majority of Rhode Island kids do because of being eligible at the state level for insurance, but right. if a child is uninsured, there's almost always a way to come up with a fee-for-service treatment for people. Mm -hmm. Really, I can't think of any mental health center that would turn a family away with a child because there wasn't insurance. We'd find a way to make it work because the primary concern for 
everyone working in kids' mental health is to make sure children are getting the treatment they need. Sometimes mm -hmm. we have to be more creative than other times. Um, mm -hmm. And also there's so many stressors, it seems, for young children. We talked about the pandemic, um, but also the mass shootings. There seem to be so many of them throughout the country and so routine. I mean, it's unsettling to think that there are two or three in the course of a week. And I know young you know, children, teenagers who, who actually talk about it and worry about that. I, I think they all do. Kids growing up now have lockdown drills. When I was a child, we had fire drills right. and you lined up and you went outside and every once in a while, it would seem more real because something happened in the chemistry lab or someone was making popcorn in a microwave. Right. For the most part, you weren't that worried about it. You walked outside and, you know, you mostly listened to the teacher and it's hopefully it was a good day to get some sunshine. You know, my parents who are boomers um, talk about when they were kids, there were nuclear bomb drills, right? They would hide under their desks. Mm -hmm. And I feel like our kids now deal with lockdown drills. And I think for all of us who are out, out of school, it's mm -hmm. so we can't really connect with what it's like. Um, but I know, you know, in the past couple of weeks, a number of Rhode Island high schools got SWAT calls um, because my own children were involved in that. And it's terrifying. It's it terrifying is. for them, even though our schools did a wonderful job, they keep in touch with us as parents. And I think we do have some of the better gun safety legislation currently in the state. And I know there's many people at the state house working right now to mm -hmm. put common sense gun legislation in place to keep our kids safe, keep our community safe, and to also make sure that people who are having a mental health crisis don't make a decision that they never have a chance to come back from. Mm -hmm. which I think is a very important piece to keep in mind that Absolutely. there are degrees of lethality to people's engagement in self-harm. And some, some things people do to harm themselves are much more easily treated than others and some things you can't come back from easily. So as a psychiatrist, I always feel very strongly about making sure people are aware that guns aren't just dangerous in the context of these mass shootings, but for people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. Yes. And this is such an important conversation that we're having. Um, welcome. If you're just joining us, I'm Deborah Giro, host of Rhode Island's Amazing Women. Karen Kay is our producer. And our guest is Dr. Daisy Basson, a child psychiatrist. She's also the medical director of Thrive Behavioral Health. And we're talking about the mental health of teenagers and young adults. Do you know what percentage of um, young adults, people 18 to 24, actually receive mental health treatment here in Rhode Island? You know, I was actually doing a little Googling about this before. Mm -hmm. um, I, I usually focus uh, actually on the under 18s. So um, I couldn't find anything that specifically would address that. And the other the other truth about statistics is they always lag. So you're right, always that's true. Last year. Um, I think a good resource for people if they're interested in following this kind of data is Kids Count. Mm, um, absolutely. Right, so Kids Count is great. And they actually just released, I think they're 2022 you know, reflecting on 2021. So one of the pieces, the one of the statistics I picked out from there is that in 2021, 22% of Rhode Island high school students reported that they had received the psychiatric care they needed. And that was down from the year prior, um, partly might have been the pandemic, but there was sort of a greater need and people not feeling like that need was being met. Um, otherwise, it's sort of hard to like, as much as we care about the country, we care mostly about Rhode Island right here. So looking <laughs> at statistics that cover all of America, is not as helpful because some places really have virtually no psychiatric treatment, certainly very, very little for kids. Right. Um, we are, I wouldn't say we're robust. And I would say as a, as a child psychiatrist, I know these statistics well, pretty much every state in America is considered to be in a severe child psychiatry deficit. Mm -hmm. The only place that on paper at least has enough child psychiatrists per capita 
is Washington, D.C., but that doesn't really count because because of the way people in D.C. actually live in Maryland and Virginia a lot of the time. That's right. Yeah, so it's that's really accurate. Um, but even our state, which is sort of in severe deficit, but not devastating deficit, it's still not accurate as to how many patient doctors are actually available to see kids and families because some doctors are retired and they still show up in the list. Some doctors only do research, which is really important, but it means if you're doing only research, you're not treating patients. Exactly. Some people work part-time. So whatever the number is, it's mm -hmm. actually a smaller number. So one of the issues I think nationally is that we need to have um, medical schools and those sort of graduate medical people uh, and the government um, invest more in, in putting more spots for, for psychiatrists to be trained. Um, just for people's clarification, um, the training for a child psychiatrist is that you first go to medical school, then you have to complete an adult psychiatry residency. And only after that, can you take, do a child fellowship. Wow. Some people How many do, years does that take, Dr. Bassett? So if you do a, a an adult residency followed by a child fellowship, it's a minimum of five years. Um, it's often six. There are some, we have some great ones in the state. There are some doctors who are actually uh, do some especially as pediatric training. So they're both, they can be board certified as general pediatricians, adult psychiatrists and child psychiatrists. And so they're called triple boarders. We have a triple board program in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. um, we have a number of excellent triple board child psychiatrists who work in the state. But the bottom line is to become a child psychiatrist, it's it's sort of the longest journey, one of the longest journeys you can take. So it takes, the, it takes a while to make a child psychiatrist. Um, this isn't, even if we invested today and said, we're gonna make there could be 10,000 more spots for psychiatry in the country. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm having a fantasy about this right now. Um, <laughs> all those 10,000 people would not become child psychiatrists, but even if they did, it would be a minimum five, of, seven years, you know, about you know 12 years before they 12. came out. And that's, right out of training a decade that's a whole decade that means that the 8 10 12 year old who needs it now is not going to really be certain their children maybe might be serviced in 20 years that's why we're so lucky that we have help from our pediatric colleagues who right. really i feel like they i love pediatricians they're so great they work <laughs> with child psychiatrists all the time i have I, I mean i call pediatricians all the time and i try to make it be that they feel that they can call me um so if they get stuck on a case even if it's a patient i'm not treating i always like to talk to my pediatric mm -hmm. colleagues and try to figure out if they're getting stuck what are barriers how can we get things through because most children's child psychiatric treatment will begin in a pediatrician's office that's who sure. will see the first that's yeah. who knows the best um, and that's where parents will go when they're not sure so a couple of thoughts um, on things that you raised. You're absolutely correct about Rhode Island's kids count. We do have good healthcare coverage here for our, our children. Uh, I think it's like 98%. Paige Clausius Parks, who's the executive director of Kids Count, actually joined me on the show uh, not too long ago and raised the same issues about mental health and the concern, you know, with young children and teenagers. And I wanted to share again with our listeners, Kids Link is available if someone is listening and wants to reach out to get some help for their child. Also 988 and of course, Rhode Island's 24-7-211 number. Um, I have to ask you, this is, you graduated from Princeton University's creative writing program, which I think is phenomenal. How did you then transition from creative writing to medical training and become a child psychiatrist? Well, I, I often will tell people, if you ever wonder what happens to English majors, just look at me. So, <laughs> I was an English major. My parents are retired high school English teachers. My sister's a high school teacher, um, but both of my grandfathers were doctors. And so when I went to college, I had already uh, spent quite a bit of time writing. I was a pretty serious writer from early on. Um, and I was had to decide 
I wanted to decide fairly early on whether I wanted to go into medicine because you got to do all those pre-med classes or whether I wanted to become a professional writer and a professor. Um, and I guess I just didn't have it in me to wear that many black turtlenecks and go to that many, that many readings. <laughs> um, I also knew that I, I really, I knew that that work as an adult would be hard. And I knew that at the end of every day, I wanted to feel like I'd made a difference and that I knew that I had contributed in the world in a way that was definitely going to be important. Um, but I originally thought I'd be a pediatrician. So I did, I did my English major. I did pre-med classes um, at Princeton. Everyone writes a thesis um, before you graduate. My thesis was a book of poetry. Um, and my supervisor was Yusef Kumanyaka, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Um, wow. And then I, then I went to medical school. Um, and the truth is that um, there are a lot of people who are writers who are doctors and a lot of people who are humanities majors who are doctors because practicing medicine is about listening to people's stories. Mm -hmm. And it's about listening more than it is about talking, even though I'm talking a lot today. Um, you're being so, interviewed. It's okay for you to talk. You're supposed to be talking. I think the best doctors that people have, the doctors they feel who, who gave them the best care are the ones they felt like who listened to them, mm -hmm. who took their time, and who really were curious about understanding their experience. And if you're someone who's interested in reading books the way I've always been and in writing stories and poems the way I've always been, then medicine, which is a, a lot about taking a history and then writing down someone's story um, is a natural fit. You just have to like the science part enough. Um, well, I can understand the transition. We're chatting with Dr. Uh, Daisy Basson, who is a child psychiatrist. And so as a child psychiatrist, for someone listening, what are some of the warning signs that they should know about if they think that their you know, child is really having some struggles with mental health? It's a really good question. Um, I think it depends on the age of the child because we expect certain things. And I think this is an especially difficult question, honestly, for parents of teenagers, because we all know that teenagers need more time to themselves. And sometimes they argue with us more. And sometimes they don't seem to want to listen to anything that we have to say. So I think across, across the age span, um, when kids start losing interest in previously preferred activities, things that usually really got them revved up and nothing takes its place. So this isn't about like you used to like Legos and now you're really into watching a YouTube influencer. This is about all the stuff that you were really excited about. You don't seem that interested in. Um, that's, that's something that's concerning. If you see a decline in school performance, if the teacher mm -hmm. starts saying, this doesn't seem like your kid, the grades are dropping, not from, this doesn't mean like there has to be a failure, but even if you're seeing like a decline on a previously really high achieving kid who was really driven and they don't seem to care as much, um, kids who have changes in their sleeping and eating habits that seem pretty sustained. Now I'm not talking about one bad night or two bad nights or, you know, a couple of days of being off with eating, but sort of more prolonged. Um, those things are concerning. If your kids' friends come to you and tell you they're concerned, or you hear from kids, you know, friends, parents being like, they didn't seem like themselves, just seemed a little off to us. That's something to keep your eye on. Mm -hmm. And again, if somebody sees some of those warning signs, kids link is a good resource. Obviously yes. the, the child pediatrician, is yes. also a good resource. What else would you recommend? I would recommend uh, that you can always try to talk to your the services at your child's school, school social mm -hmm. worker, school psychologist, school nurse sometimes could be the, one of the first people who notices something is off with the kid because they're leaving the class. They're wanting to spend more time in the nurse's office. They don't feel good. A lot of times, especially younger children, 
but yeah. older kids as well, will sort of manifest their psychological issues with some physical complaints. Lots of upset stomachs, headaches, not feeling good, dizzy, tired. Mm-hmm. So the school nurse, who's the one who ends up saying, this doesn't seem like you, you seem kind of down, you seem kind of off. So never forget that we have excellent school staff who are available. And even if they're not exactly sure what's going on, they often kind of have a spidey sense this isn't who this child is. Right. And so then it's about talk, like if the school staff are concerned, then you talk to the pediatrician. Sometimes right. kids will talk to their pediatrician about things that they wouldn't talk about to their parents um, or to people at school. Mm-hmm. I would also say if your child's involved in activities, coaches can sometimes be people who pick up on these kind of things um, because they keep, see kids and activities that they enjoy. If they're withdrawing or they're not performing in the same way, the coach might be somebody who you think right. about. So what do we need to do from a state policy perspective when it comes to pushing for increased state funding for mental health screening, for diagnosis, for treatment for children and these young adults? It just doesn't seem to be enough emphasis. And we're talking about it. A lot of people are talking about it. Now it's time to kind of put the uh, put the funding behind the policy, right? Yes. I mean, my my feeling is that making sure that we devote a substantial amount of money to a wide variety of treatments is where it's at. So looking at home-based services and making sure we're funding that. And when I say funding, I mean, we have to make sure that our workforce is properly compensated because this is tough work and people have to pay their bills and they have to want to keep on doing this day in and day out. And so they have to be properly compensated. Mm -hmm. And that also sometimes means thinking about could we have more creative student loan forgiveness programs to encourage people to train in our state and stay in our state across different healthcare fields? I'm talking about school psychologists, speech pathologists, all these, you know, not, I'm not just talking about child psychiatrists, right. but lots of different folks could use help with their student loans. Um, I think making sure that we're having the insurance companies reimburse uh comparably so that basically psychiatric care is medical care. Right. So I talk about psychiatry versus cardiology or psychiatry versus neurology or endocrinology, not psychiatry versus medicine. Psychiatry is medicine. When it's all in your head, of course, it's all in your head. That's where your brain is. Right. And also you mentioned that if you have some mental health issues or stressors, it can have a physiological response on your body. So to me, mental health is, and physical health are one in the same because we're just one human being, you know, it's exactly soul. Um, so, I mean, there are some things that are right about the mental health system. What is working? We have just a few, we have about 60 seconds. So if you can succinctly say what is working in your opinion with the mental health system in Rhode Island? I think in Rhode Island, we have an unusual ability to communicate with each other because we're a small place and most of us know each other. And it's easy to get to talk to people here. I was struck when I first started doing this, um, that in Rhode Island, when you call people at the state house, they're the ones who pick up the phone. So, (laughs) so if you want to go talk to someone in the state, you better be ready. And I tell, I tell trainees that if you want to start advocating, just know if you call a state rep or state Senator, they'll probably answer the phone themselves. I did for 14 years. (laughs) That's, that's a wonderful opportunity we have. And I feel like lots and lots of people at the state level are interested in talking about these things. And because we're a small enough size, a million people, it's easier to come up with pilot programs and sort of see how they work. And to have our different level systems communicate. I think the other thing is most child psychiatrists in the state know each other. And most of us know most of the pediatricians. And that's a huge advantage because we can work together so much more effectively. Such a wonderful network. I want to remind people again, uh, Kids Link is a great resource. And of course, 988. 
Dr. Daisy Bassin, child psychiatrist. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this importance of mental health. Really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you having me here. Obviously, you can tell from my tone of voice, this is something I'm passionate about. Um, I've devoted my career to this. I spend a lot of time in advocacy, but I mostly do it because I love the work. I love working with kids and families. And for everyone who sort of thinks, is this kind of sad or dark? I just want to say it's not. Kids get better. Mm-hmm. Kids get better all the time. They need the support. They and do. That's how we all get better. Thank you. I end each show with a quote. And this one is uh, from Matt Haig, English author and children's books. Mental health problems do not define who you are. They are something you experience. You walk in the rain and you feel the rain. But importantly, you are not the rain. So true. I'm Deb Ruggiero. Thank you so much for joining us. You can listen anytime at the website, amazingwomenri.com, or you can stream the podcast anytime on your favorite streaming devices. Thanks for joining us. Stay well.